Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. It will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and tonight we're going to go down memory lane of the timekeeper. This is episode 48. Sitting in with me, as always, is Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There we are. How, how's it going down there? Oh, it's very lovely here. It appears that Jack Frost is scampering away and <laughs> spring is not far. We're, uh, we had a couple of days here where it was like in the 50s this week. Ooh. So we hold out hope because I hate winter like a circle vision film. <laughs> That's <laughs> Well, all right, well, you be allowed tonight. <laughs> oh, and all coming in from Ohio, Mr. JT Kuzier. How you doing tonight, JT? I'm good, and just like Brian, I dislike this winter. I know it's getting better when I have to go in the attic and get the Easter basket out for Lily. Oh, and yeah. the, the new Easter basket just arrived in the mail for Andrew. So we are we're, we're locking Look in at, for oh, yeah. That's awesome. Now, is she going to get the, the, the ice cream maker or anything to go along with the hot dog maker from Christmas? Or No, we're into Legos now. So oh. we build a Lego kit uh, together. We've we've been doing skylines. I know it sounds very boring, but she li- it's the, the small motor skill we're building. And then we build, like, legs. We built uh, Sydney, Australia. We're in the middle of That's Las Vegas kit. now. And I got her. This one, it's kind of cool. It is the Women of NASA Lego kit. It was only oh, like 20 nice. bucks, but it's pretty clever. It's a space cool. shuttle and little vignettes of, of Lego people. So. So, cool. so has the sheen worn off of the hot dog maker? Is that like a <laughs> hat now? She doesn't care about it anymore? It's funny you ask because we literally used it tonight. <laughs> oh, very for good. For the first time in like a month. So we, we have it. It still worked. It was good. And yeah, I actually had to press down my hot dogs a second run because the the, the knob wasn't hot enough so you know high enough they're, they're still set from christmas morning so that's yes, right you, yeah. you, you always want a lukewarm hot dog on christmas yes. morning you don't want anything piping hot so. yes exactly <laughs> uh coming in from tampa mr how bowers he may have stepped on lego he may have had a hot dog today and the temperature is always very temperate so from tampa florida how you doing <laughs> aloha yeah it's beautiful it's currently gosh let's see it's been in the 80s oh, during the day ugh. and uh <sighs> we yeah, hate you sunny a little foggy little i foggy was in the morning, snow but, last uh, this weekend and so. oh yeah it's se- oh yeah it's 70 it, degrees wow. right. todd you just had winter slide off your roof didn't you Yes, we did as we were recording earlier um the entire snowbank of snow and ice Came off the roof, scared the bejesus out of the dog. Everything went nuts and haywire in the house. Stop recording. 
So, yes, uh, we were after, actually sent my son out today to collect more of the sap for the maple syrup. So we're uh, in the middle of the uh, season for old man Peabody syrup. So just hold on to your hats. You'll have a little little gift soon. If you donate a thousand dollars, you can get a you can get a if you donate a thousand, you can get a, a glass of <laughs> yeah. his syrup. That's right. That's right. And speaking of donations, so we do have a special guest sitting in with us tonight. So as many of you know, um, we have different levels of donations with for to the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. And while at, at the highest level, um, you do get to sit in and listen to a podcast episode, but you also get to do a little appearance on the show as well. So we wanted to welcome Anthony Slammon to the show, who is one of our high-level donors. And Anthony, welcome. You can... You were a former cast member. First of all, thank you very much yeah, for your thank patronage. You very thank much. you. Really yes, appreciate thank it. You. Welcome. It was great. Goes a long way to doing the things we need to do to restore the films and 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 uh, you know purchase those and keep everything going on the air. And these shiny new mics we're working working with are, are all from people's donations. So um, so tell everybody a little bit about yourself and you've you've worked down at Disney as well. Uh, yeah, I'm a uh, former Future World cast member from 1989 to 1992. I uh, worked primarily at the Land Boat Ride, uh, World of Motion, Horizons, and Spaceship Earth. Uh, just, just, just those, right? Just yeah. no big yeah, deal. Just, just yeah. a few years, yeah. so, you know. You know. Oh man. <laughs> so, so at the time, it was still listened to the land when you worked on it. Yes, but even the cast members that worked there just called it the land boats or land boat yeah. ride. You actually yep. spieled the boats, which is a, a rare thing these days. Yeah. We, yes. Live spiel the whole way. You uh, sat down indoors, and as soon as you hit the greenhouses, you stood up. And uh, gosh, I think I went around that canal probably about 2,000 times. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so in your era, could people understand you, or was it like at the end, it's like this is a and a beautiful. So people could understand us. Well, we are a very diverse cast, but um, sometimes you had certain <laughs> groups that maybe they didn't speak English, and you were just trying to get to that thing as fast as possible. Now, can you still say it all? That that's that was giving me uh, my next question because if we got a whole boat together, we organized this and gave you a little bullhorn and got the clearance. Could you take us through the original "Listen to the Land"? Oh yes, definitely. Oh my God! Oh, that would Sorry, be Todd. Nice. So what we feel. We and I don't think you really have to uh, yes. organize anything. I think you can just stand up because uh, they're not uh, a live <laughs> cast member there and just start talking. Really. Oh, they'll yell at you. They've, I've seen it happen. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's the $1,000 donation. You get to go with Anthony. All of us <laughs> will give you an earpiece like a Disney tour, and we'll ride through and hear an original it'll be version. Like, it'll be like Secret Service, just everybody holding their ear as they're going That'd through. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I, w- I will tell you it was very echoey in the aqua cell. When you would go by the uh, oh the yeah, I, I remember that. And so a lot yeah. of guys would have to talk low. That's right. I always want. I was always hoping one day that the somebody would have just accidentally put up the door to go into the storage facility for the boats, <laughs> and you would just go through and kind of yeah. tour, and then come right back onto the. Track. I still think about that sometimes. Well, so. a fun fact is when the door went up, there was actually a, a knee stop, like a break that would come up from the canal and stop the next boat from going in. Oh, and, really? Uh, I have been on a live boat spieling, and that break has come up, and it just <laughs> you pretty quick. Ooh. Yeah, previous cast member actually, because it's just track like that. Now, is that your craziest cast member story? Or do you have a, a, a something crazier that happened? Oh uh, well, that was one of them for that attraction. Um, I've had other attractions where at the uh, the World of Motion, I was evacuating the ride, and when you would go into the dark uh, city of the future scene, 
I was trying to get at the uh, wheelchair guests out of their cars. Well, there's only three cars that had wheelchair guests in it, but because it was in a dark room, I just totally missed them. Oh, no. People that are supposed to be first out of the attraction actually ended up being last. So (laughs) stuff happens like that. Yep. Yep. Human error. Well, Anthony, we really do appreciate you, you know, your generosity and patronage to the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. Again, donors like yourself are really important to keeping this and everybody who donates is important because, um, you know, as you guys know, there are no advertisements on this show. There are no sponsors. It's solely done through donations and keep keeping everything going. So thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy sitting in with us tonight. And um, if you have any stories, just pipe up. (laughs) All right. You're welcome. You're awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Anthony. All right. All right, guys. Well, it's time to jump over to corrections and comments. Um, I got a couple here in referencing some older episodes. So uh, Andy Hudson wrote in regarding last month's episode on the arcades. And he says, uh, I spent a day in the Magic Kingdom and noticed that the Felix the Cat mutoscope was in the train station. Do they move these around to different locations from time to time? Do we know that how? Do they are they pretty much permanent now? You know what? I don't know. To be honest, it's uh, maybe they had one that was broken and replaced it. Uh, but also, I mean, honestly, I'm just not there enough these days to know what's going on. I did notice one time that the two that were at um, the uh, boardwalk were gone, mm. maybe in for some refurb. So they could be swapping them out from time to time. And as several people noted, you know, both before the the show and also on Twitter afterwards, it's like, those things tend to be broken a lot, so they could be actively trying to actually fix them now, which would right. be wonderful. So, and if any of your listeners out there want to start a new Twitter, you know, at mutoscope underscore location is still available <laughs> out there if you want to start something up. So, thanks for writing in, Andy. All right, so the next one that actually references an uh, an older episode here it comes from Mike Skinner, Denver, Colorado, and this one is really neat. Um, he's a big fan of the Polynesian and eastern winds and he's heard us talk about that on some of our older uh podcast episodes and he was watching an episode of charlie's angel on me tv yeah guys this was TV? amazing yeah do you guys get me tv kind of oh, i watch it every week yeah no. it's a, a lot of old reruns anyway it looks like from 1979 uh it was filmed in saint thomas and at the 44 second mark of the opening they pan across and there's the eastern winds moored in the bay Boom. How cool is that? <laughs> no. So we've tracked it down. We're, we're getting closer to its present day. We've, we've only moved to 1979 now, but <laughs> eventually we'll find it and be able to rent it. So um, we will definitely post the link for that because that it, it's so cool. He, he, he uh, digitized it and, and threw it up to YouTube for everybody to see. And sure enough, it looks pretty good at, back then. So Yeah, it's like two seconds, so don't blink because they're... Right, it just pans by really, really quick. So, so what we're going to do, JT, is someday we're going to find it. Yep. Then we're going to raise enough money uh, to sail it from uh, St. Pete uh, through the Panama Canal to Disneyland. <laughs> yep. We'll sail it to California and do the full, do the full trip. That's, That's cool. right. All right. Well, JT, you've got some listener mail coming in, too. Uh, what do we got this month? All right, yeah. There's it's it's been pretty busy. It's uh it's interesting now since we have all the new uh, emails set up and forwardings. It's but we're still getting everything. Um, and it's super exciting. I love getting the mailbag out and checking the hard copy mail and the email. Um, all right, first one. 
This is from Amy. She says, hi, guys. I'm new to the podcast. Been binge listening like a lot of listeners. Uh, One question she has, maybe you haven't answered it in the podcast before, but maybe you have. What was the normal length of stay for a Disney vacation in the 70s? And this is interesting to me, too. We talked last week about the check-in process, not last week, last month or two episodes ago. The check-in process, how long it took. It seemed like forever. Did the length of stay vary, or did people still do a week like back then like they do now? Or what's what do you guys know about that? Uh, I'll give my input, and then I'll let the other guys jump in. Uh, so based on many, many postcards that I have collected that people sent from Walt Disney World in the 70s, uh, I would venture to say that most stays were two to three days if, if it wasn't a day trip uh, incorporated into a larger Florida stay. Most of those people stayed uh, some, somewhere off-site because you know, they only had two or three hotels once the golf resort opened. And so most people were off-site and would visit St. Augustine and would visit Walt Disney World and would go to SeaWorld once that opened. A lot of stops at Cypress Gardens and Circus World and and different attractions around there. But most of the time, it was maybe one night if they were staying right there, uh, they would go to the park, uh, the lone amusement park, theme park, and then move on to do other Florida attractions, the citrus tower and things like that. I I think a lot of the films that we've restored echo exactly what you're saying, Brian, is that, um, you know, this, a lot of the films you people, you, everybody, everybody sees out there are snippets from larger 400 foot reels. Um, and yeah, hours and hours, hours of footage of the water ski show at Cypress Gardens. <laughs> I don't know how many we've seen of that one. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Weeky Wacky or whatever it is, uh, Marine yeah. Land. Lo- and, Lion Safari or Lion Country. Oh, yes, Lion it's Country. Like- and, and even the very first film that I ever restored, which was my grandparents' film, it was the same thing. It was it was a motor, you know, a, a trip in, on the highway down to Florida, uh, and you spend a day or so at all these different things. So. I would say that probably not until the early to mid '80s did things, especially with Epcot, start picking up to to uh, you know a week stay. I know when we went down there in 1980, we did stay quote unquote seven days, but you know what? We didn't we didn't stay at Disney the whole time, you know. And also too, you I think we only did two days in the Magic Kingdom. We did a day at SeaWorld. We spent almost the entire day at Lake Buena Vista. We probably did nothing for a day as well. Um, it just you know, there was less to do, but I think it was just, it was just very, you know, it was no, uncommon. no, Todd, everything was perfect back then. It was the best. Everything worked. All the food was great. And it only costs like three cents to do anything. It and was, you made $4,000 a year too. Yeah. It was, <laughs> so, and we liked it. That's right. That's the way it was. So. And, and from the, from the setup documents, it's like, that's exactly the thing. They knew they would have people at the magic kingdom for a day. The watercraft and other activities were something to, to maybe incentivize people to stay over two days. But really, that's yeah. about all that they could count on. Although, And I think it's funny, in all the advertising, they're always like, our recommendation is two days at the Magic right. Kingdom. Wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was really, it was a day or two and then, and you were done. And yeah, when we came down to Florida, it's like we always stayed with, our, with my sister. But yeah, you know, we did the Magic Kingdom for a day. It's like we would do... Mystery Funhouse one night, and Sea you know Sea World was a must do. 
Oh, that wax museum, the Hollywood Forever Wax Museum. Remember? Oh, right? um, the um, Stars, Stars Hall, of Hall of Fame. That's it. Yeah, Stars Hall of okay. Fame. Yep. So there was there was a bunch of little things to do in Orlando to sort of augment. You'd, maybe you'd go to the Tupperware Tupperware no. Museum, which I still want to do. Is that it's supposed there? to be a great museum? Yeah, I'll yes. do that with you one trip. Absolutely. I want to add something else here regarding how Disney did that. You know, in in 1980, there really wasn't multi-day tickets right um you did start to see the multi-day passports really come out after epcot came to be and when you start seeing a four five six seven day ticket um i'm looking up some of the history here now that the 1981 there was actually a six-day ticket i mean who who was buying it back then but really where did they start to really press the multi-day ticket was after epcot um, and I think that's really where people said, oh, wow, four days. We can spend two days in the park, one day at a at River Country, and we'll hang out the next day. or We'll go see Edna, you know, and, and Bob <laughs> on the off day. And all of a sudden you well, had yeah. a week vacation. And that and that was my first trip there was four full days down there. And we had a three-day park copper. Uh, so it was one day in the Magic Kingdom, one day at Epcot, one day hopping between them to do the stuff that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And the other day we went to SeaWorld. Right. There you go. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe at the campgrounds, maybe that was the one place where you would have a longer than than two day. Because for those people, it's like the adventures. Well, and that was so. the difference. I mean, JT talked about how he used to go and they'd spend a week, but only go to the parks for a couple of days. A day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a day. Really? And, you know, don't forget, too, is that, it, you know, you're going back to the tickets, too, is you're you weren't. You weren't tagged as how many days you were going. You were tagged as how many adventures you were going on. Remember, all the tickets were adventures, yeah. you A, B, C, D, all that good stuff, or your unlimited books or whatever. But an unlimited ticket was was really unheard of. It, I don't think they, those came out to the late 70s where you could go on anything. That's that's what's weird, too, is the the there's nothing to do. When I look back, I mean, we think like, oh, we'd spend a month there just looking at, you know, taking pictures and, a- and measuring angles on fonts and, you know, all this stuff. But, like, you'd show up. It was like one day. There's the park. All right, maybe I'll take a look at this hotel. And then when did Treasure Island, Discovery Island open? Is that late 70s or was that mid, mid-70s? mid 73, one of them, 75, the other. I mean, River Country was 76. So it and, took a while for extra things to show up even then. So it yeah. was the more the 80s that you're saying. That's the, the turning point. Well, and that, and that was part of the, you know, Eisner mm-hmm. realized when they opened MGM and people started extending their stays... That was part of what drove the animal kingdom was, well, if we open up a fourth park, then people will say. And so the whole idea was eventually get people to spend a whole week, which they do now uh, without having to build more parks. Because uh, what happened was when they opened animal kingdom, people did not change their travel patterns. Uh, so that's was part of the research where they were like, OK, well, we'll stop opening par- parks then. <laughs> you know, Sure. Well, that was Amy. Thanks, Amy. Good question. Good conversation. Yeah, great question. Uh, it's it's always interesting to look back at the the travel habits of the seventies and mo- mostly the seventies. I feel like the eighties. You I... just sat in the back with uh, no seatbelt on, getting all your parents' secondhand <laughs> smoke <laughs> in a hot, yeah, unair conditioned hot, unair conditioned car with nothing to. You didn't have no TVs or game. You just had to look out the window and stop fighting with your brothers and sisters and wait for that. <laughs> and if you didn't, they wait. They hit you from the front seat in the back. They just would like wail at you to try to grab you I'm telling you that's why that am radio transmission was gold to us it was like yes <laughs> absolutely we finally made it something different yeah. 
Uh, Welcome to Walt Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so next up, uh, how this one was uh, a discussion I kind of caught the tail end of between you and Sarah. Sarah says, everything I see says the Beauty and the Beast show in Hollywood Studios started in November of 91. But I was there at the beginning of August of 91 and remember seeing it. Am I going crazy? I, you know, so this is fascinating. Uh, she might be, or maybe she's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to we'll pause here for a second while I pull up the timeline, because I actually ended up doing a bunch of research, and, and I still have in my file drawer, like sitting next to me, uh, schedules from, like, <laughs> from right around that time period, because that is exactly when I was going to Disney MGM a, a lot. So uh, I was able to, to pull those out. And also just double check those against some uh, some online things. And here's what we found out. So in, in my schedules that I have, from September 8th to September 14th, uh, there was no show. It was closed. And then from September 15th to September 21st, it was closed. And then from September 29th to October 5th, that week, they ran Hollywood's Pretty Woman, <laughs> which was a different live show. And then when I went back on november 25th sometime between november 25th and december 1st it was the beauty and the beast show so uh she was saying that she was there in august August, right so um there was a from what from what we can tell there was a different show running at that point which then closed so that they could prep for the hollywood's pretty women and that lasted a pretty short period of time and then they closed it and, and prepped for beauty and the beast you know, she may have come across like a random dress rehearsal or some kind of, you know, test thing. Um, but that was a good two months, September, October, yeah, before the um, the movie opened. Because the, the show actually opened on the same day as the film, which I think was November 14th. So um, that was pretty, that would have been pretty early. So um, she's going to actually, uh, look through her photos and try to find some photographic evidence, which will be great. So I, I think that'd be neat if she actually did catch a, catch like an early, you know, preview or, or them like working out some stuff. That'd be really, really and cool. I feel like my embers at MGM was, it was very spontaneous like that. Certainly, you know, the, I don't know what year the, the parades and all that garbage happened with the celebrity and you know it was just you'd be standing there like hey there goes fred savage you know, it was just very <laughs> oh yeah very random thing that was that was from the beginning and the beauty and the beast show i mean i'm not sure when we're going to cover it, but like that thing was insanely popular like it started out in the regular theater of the stars there with the sort of the hollywood bowl looking thing yeah and within a week or two they had started to add bleachers to the back for additional seating because it was on. And I thought that started elsewhere too, before the bowl. I thought that was, I thought it started before the bowl. Well, I mean the old one. Oh, okay. Okay. The old one before the new. Be- yeah. Okay. Before they actually like gotcha. added tower of terror and, right, yeah, right, and okay. built the really big thing. Yeah. That little one that was, you know, part of Mickey's ear. If you yes looked in the overhead view. Yeah. It just like, it exceeded the capacity there and they, they added like two, Oh God, four or six rows of, four or six stands of bleachers yep. and it was that was a huge show and it it still it's packs people still in still running I mean, it, it's exceptionally well done i mean it's yeah if you, you want to see the theater in in mgm for the day or, or what you know hollywood studios well, it's kind of a good right and i and i also think that it was those shows that inspired them to do the broadway stuff right that that, that inspired them to Possibly, yeah. I mean, they always, it's funny, they did a live show every time a movie came out. 
um they, they did some pretty aggressive live shows they did one for yeah, i remember that one that was yeah. really good by on the rope quasimodo yeah um for pocahontas they did a live show but uh, which which one was the first one on it was beauty and the beast was the first one on broadway wasn't it Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, Lion, Lion King. Lion King. No, Lion King was second. Lion King. Beauty and the Beast yeah. came came first, and oh, okay. and like they, it became this smash hit yeah. in Broadway, and then they were like, oh, okay, every time something comes out, <laughs> we'll make a Broadway <laughs> show out of and it. And now a movie. Yeah, and then they just start printing money, and then they change Times Square. They turn Times Square <laughs> from a red light district into a family district. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. That was a good. Uh, walk through MGM Studios there that that history on that finally this one's from Casey hey guys long time listener and re-listener here first off great job on the podcast it is a joy to listen to and helps me get my fix for different attractions in the parks that are just aren't around anymore do any of you remember was there a specific point in time when Epcot all capital Epcot ceased to be an acronym and changed to lowercase Epcot and if so, why? Keep up the great work. Congratulations on the LBVHS. That's from Casey. Yeah, so I did. I answered her email, but I will tell all of you that that came about in 1994 when they went from Epcot Center to Epcot 94, lowercase Epcot with the little dash 94 because it was supposed to be like every year we're going to have new stuff like it was the... If in the in the vein of the original permanent world's fair uh that they were going to promote new attractions and new things and so innoventions was opening that year oh yeah uh which was going to have a constant rotating uh different attractions and things to see in there and so they did epcot 95 this was at the same and time that every piece of software and everything in the world was getting apostrophe year too right Windows ninety four. Really, Windows Windows ninety five was the start yeah. of it. I mean, it really was that and same Mike, time period. Micro, I think there was Microsoft and Carta ninety four had everything come out. had a year <laughs> after. Yeah, yeah everything. I mean, I, I will say that Illustrator eighty eight probably did it first. Oh. There we go. But it, <laughs> that's possible. Late eighties, early nineties, everything had but to have so, a year. So, so they did that Epcot thing in ninety four, ninety five. I think there was also like they started Epcot ninety six, but abandoned it. Uh, very early in the year, and it just became Epcot with that little international flag logo thing that Marty Sklar declared at the 30th anniversary was stupid, and uh, <laughs> it's the wisest thing Marty Sklar ever said. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good history on the title of Epcot. Um, where's it going? Have we seen anything in all the new stuff? Is it sticking with the lowercase or is it going uppercase? They, they, they seem to be re-embracing the uh, large, the uh, all capital letters in a lot of stuff that they're doing now. So with the... Yeah. Go ahead. I'll, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be surprised if we see center, if we see the old logo come back, but without center on it. That that would be my Interesting. guess. Well, so... So the flower, the, you know, the flower star logo will come back. You'll see Epcot, but they'll probably not do same something. font. How? Yeah, in the old, I think they're going to go back to the old school. Well, and and part of that was that somewhere along the way, somebody decided that experimental prototype community of tomorrow center didn't make any sense. <laughs> True. So that's why they kind of dropped the center. Um, you know, I don't know why it took them. 12 years to decide hey this that doesn't really make a lot of sense but all right yeah well 
I guess they were like, well, I guess there's not going to be any more of that. So it doesn't. This doesn't have to be the center. This is going to be all of it. <laughs> I still call it Epcot Center because that's my that's my hipster tribute to uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to the to the land to the park. People still know what you're talking about. I mean, come on, you know, you can say center. Oh. It works. But what most people still know that it's. I mean, a lot of people think it's still called Epcot Center. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that is it from Casey. Thank you, Casey. For anybody that would like to reach us, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us an email with your questions, comments. Uh, you can send us a Facebook message, a Twitter message, uh, Instagram message. Reach us wherever you can, and we will respond to you uh, as soon as possible. So thanks again. All right, thanks, JT, for the listener mail. And it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. How you provided another one to us. I appreciate that. Um, did any of you guys get it? Came from... No? Well, let's take a listen. All right, so if you guessed Future Core, and the official title of the song was Los Hermanos de Bop, uh, you are correct. And we do have a winner. Congratulations to Keith Burton. You're going to be winning one of our Lake Buena Vista Historical Society posters that Jason drew. So we're going to get that right out to you. Um, and we need some prizes for this month. So, guys, I've, I'm going to give away a poster again, but check this out. I had My wife was going through some things that we had stored and we have some extra leftover teas that were made. Is it an Epcot ninety four tea? Oh, it boy. is not. But this is this now. I, this is a small. But whoever will we'll send this along with a poster. <laughs> this is a kids, a kids River Country lifeguard long sleeve shirt. And we also have that's fitting for they just started the demo what this week. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and we also have some limited edition Lake and Lagoon T shirts. These are the original. Um, silkscreen runs that were done and these are all uh nice. adult smalls as well but you'll get a poster as well so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna do this i've got four shirts so i'm gonna i'm gonna pick four winners this month we're Whoa. gonna pick, right. four winners four posters so you, you get, get a you shirt get, and you, you get a shirt right and you get a shirt and i understand we, we don't have extra sizes here but hopefully there'll be somebody in your family or so only answer enjoy. if you're small <laughs> <laughs> or if you know somebody who would wear an adult small or the river country small small tea or trying to win two times and sew two of them together <laughs> that's just, that's right just cut it down the seam and put it together like a sleeveless you know that's right undershirt so get guessing four winners out there this month if you can guess the answer to this month's audio rewind if you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com all correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to pick this month's winner. And all entries should be received by April 16th, 2019. Before we begin, we'd like to make the minor control adjustments. Oops. Oh, something broke. Hold on one moment, please. Just one moment. Thank you. All right, it's time for this month's main topic, and we're taking you back to the timekeeper. And... Um, how I wanted to, you know, you have a lot of history about Circle Vision, and I know, Brian, you're not a fan of Circle Vision, but um, I did want to kind of take us back to the to the origins. Um, do you guys remember who, along with Walt, actually created one of the first Circle Vision-esque, I guess you could say, cameras and what, what it was called? I do not was know. Was it Jacques Cousteau? 
<laughs> this was not an underwater. <laughs> okay, expedition. well, I mean, it sounds like it. Sh- it should be a French guy. It, yeah, it, for sure. yeah, it was. It was UBI Works actually. Oh, UBI Works. Oh. Yeah, <clears throat> and they actually created. Now, here's another. Here's another interesting trivia for you. How many cameras did the original Circle Vision camera have, and what was it? Oh, name? we're talking ca- California, right? Yeah. So, Circarama. Circarama. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was six cameras, I think. Uh, Is that right? It was actually eleven. Oh, eleven. Yeah. Oh my oh, gosh. We spared no expense. No, no, no. We're going with a lot of film here. So um, they worked on that, and then they used the same technology as a featured attraction at the United States Pavilion in the 1958 Brussels World's Fair. So that was the first time that something went completely circular around um, around the audience. And um, it was a color film titled America, the Land, and the People, and showing a trip across the country was, was what it was about. Now... Um, when the film actually reopened it in the actual pavilion, it was then retitled America the Beautiful, which is interesting because we had America the Beautiful, the film, and, and that played under th- uh, Circle Vision 360. It was not the same film. In 1967, with the Circle Vision 360 technology, they made America the Beautiful. <laughs> so- I, I have actually seen the first America the Beautiful. Really? From the 1950s. Yeah, they they ran a one screen, like the main screen version of it on the Disney Channel one time. And I think I VHS recorded it or it's on YouTube. So I I think it's on YouTube. I think you can actually find it. It is pretty dull. (laughs) It's well, and and you can literally tell that it was bolted to the top of a car and and driven around places. So I liked it, and it's a great introduction because how I want, and Brian, I want to talk a little bit about what Circle Vision was. We have a lot of new listeners that come and may have not experienced Circle Vision at all because you know what? There's only two left, really, when you think about it. It's mind blowing. Yeah, there's only two films left, and that's obviously the China Pavilion and the Canadian Pavilion. So if you haven't and don't understand what Circle Vision 360 is, it's nine cameras that are set up in a rig so that when this specific rig is dragged through cities, put uh, hung from a helicopter, put on top of a car, it captures a 360-degree view. Now, what's really interesting is that we can now do this in our phone in five minutes. We can carry around a little tiny camera above our heads that records a very wide 360 image. It's amazing. But we have to take ourselves back to the 1970s and uh, really think about this. This was the first true, I don't know what you guys think. It's early VR, if you ask me. Instead of it moving on your screen and you, you, when you move your head, you would see it. And, yeah, uh, it's a very interesting format. So America the Beautiful, as, as we said, was remade in 1967 and it played at the magic kingdom circle vision theater um from 1971 to 74 and then we had magic carpet around the world from 74 to 75 and an encore of america the beautiful from 75 to 79 for the bicentennial that's right you gotta go back to america then we went to magic carpet again from 79 to 84 and then the new american journeys for a decade now we talked about all of these America films and magic carpet around the world. What what's the common theme here, guys? Circles. Well, going places and seeing tourism. Tourism. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, tourism. Yeah, but yeah, vistas, landscapes, going places where you normally couldn't go. Right. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that really lacked from all these is that there was never a story. Right. You were free to look around and see all the different views and. You know, oh, look, a glacier. Oh, look, a mountain. Oh, look, an ocean. Right? Some, Appala- some Appalachian people <laughs> in a cart <laughs> in front of you. That's right. But 
it never really told any type of story. So how do you take this, you know, different format, a 360, and convert it into an attraction where you can start to interact with not only a story, but with audio animatronics um, in such a way so that your eyes just aren't always focused on what's, of, what's on one screen and force yourself to look around. So that's quite a challenge when you think about it because, yeah, most people... Everybody would walk in and watch 360 and just kind of sit there and go, oh, okay, nice. That's pretty. And then leave after 15 minutes. So it's not as easy as you think because all of a sudden you've got 360 degrees of media to present. Yeah. yeah. And I'll say um, while the Canada Pavilion 360 movie was very travelogue-esque, mm. you, could, you could start to see some baby steps in story in the Wonders of China movie with the introduction of the poet character as kind of the connective tissue between right. each one of the scenes. Right. And a, not the full, you know, story yet, but like you definitely see them pushing the medium uh, a little bit, trying to get somewhere with that. And how it's, I'm glad you brought that up because for those of listening to this is episode 48, episode 48.5 will be our interview with Jeff Blythe. And he was the director not only on um, a number of films at Epcot, including Reflections of China, uh, and the second one, which is, what's the name of that one, Brian? The second China Okay. Film? Oh, the, the Wonders of China, isn't it? Wonder of China. And he will talk about how very early on in filming in these different formats and other formats that he filmed <clears> in, how he started to do things with the 360 camera that hadn't been done before, such as pans and different types of focus. And he let on all the details of the Timekeeper attraction and how that f- was filmed. It's an incredible interview, so we won't spoil for you. But It's, it's you exhaustive, but worth it. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. And I think we can credit him. He was probably one of the people that was really pushing the medium. It's like oh, yeah. He, more than anyone else, is probably, he and Randy Bright were probably together, like, trying to really make something else out of Circle Vision. Because, you know, they've been doing travelogues for 40 years. It's like, well, what else can we do? Right. And we should also explain, too, without going into the great detail that we do on that interview, is that these cameras were never really designed to do anything but being mounted upon a car. They didn't have ways to focus very easily. They didn't have ways to change the the film very easily. There's an incredible process that goes beyond just, just developing. So doing a pan or doing something was just not something you did with this because it it wasn't easy <laughs> yeah they were they were big and bulky and heavy uh and and i should say you know it wasn't just nine cameras uh pointed out right it was nine cameras bounced off of mirrors in, in this contraption right uh that they could you know put on a car or like eventually hang from a helicopter or, or finally like put on dollies and start to do things with but like it's it's heavy, yeah, and it's uh, and he describes the labor that went into like loading the film into the canisters, shooting and then unloading the film, and just how much time it physically took, yeah, to get stuff in and out of it. It's like it's a miracle that these things were right. shot at all. Oh, and then you got like four minutes of film. Yeah, that like, was when, it. <laughs> when you when you did your shoot, and if your if all nine cameras didn't have the same film from the same lot, and then processed in the same chemical bath in the same lot on the same day. The shot could be ruined. All nine shots yeah, thrown out. The colors would all be right. different. So, so if, if you're insane. not, if you're tantalized now, you will not be able to hold yourself together until episode forty-eight point five comes out. But we must move on and, and get into the attraction. So, uh, in the early nineteen nineties, uh, Disneyland Paris was was being built. Uh, then Euro Disneyland, and there was a land to be there set called Discovery Land. 
And they had this concept for an original film um, that Jules Verne would present the culture of the past and present European history and events and new inventions and all that. And they had this idea that it should be about time travel. Uh, and they even had one concept that um, a child would explore the story of great European scientists um, on an intelligent computer. Almost sounds like something Communicore would have in a way. <laughs> you know, so... Um, and they also had another idea that uh, the film would be translated by a chorus as it progressed. So I don't know how that would work. Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, they, it, it's kind of like a Greek theater, you know, comment on the action throughout the play. And it, that, that didn't work out. But they did settle on this. They settled on a robot called the Timekeeper. And he has invented a new medium of time travel and, uh, and a way that we can experience that time travel. Now, We'll talk about its nickname is Nine Eye because of the nine cameras. But does anybody know what the official name of Nine Eye was? Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, she had another she name. Had another other name, than right? That was just her name. And, but what was she? And it's and it's a girl. It is. She was a circumvisual photo droid. <laughs> <laughs> so Nine Eye was a way to travel through time and hence the nine eyes would report back on the screen all the things that nine eye was seeing when she was sent through time through the through the time machine uh and that way we as time travelers in the theater so to speak could witness these great moments in history through her lenses um, and what a neat what a neat idea to actually turn the theater into a character yeah you know instead of just like oh here stand in the theater and like watch this thing that is oh it's a movie right. it's like it's it's a neat way to like go beyond just like you're standing and watching a film and i think that's one of the key elements right there that you mentioned how is br- bridging the gap between the theater and and the show right really starting to bring that together so uh, this premiered at discovery uh, discovery land at disneyland paris on april 12 1992 in le visionarium time magazine said the film was a flop so it's not going well, but they've decided they would bring this to Discoveryland in the Magic Kingdom. Remember, that was a proposal, right? At one time when the new Tomorrowland was coming out, they thought we would have a Discoveryland USA, so to speak. They actually had a model of it at the end of the Walt Disney Story, and you, it was marked with Discoveryland with some attractions yeah. that uh, that didn't happen. So, yep, that was that was a plan. What do you mean Discovery Land? Like that thing with the big telescope and all that and the old Jules Verne or something? Yeah, it was different. like the American version of the Discovery Land in Paris. Right. So it would have, it would have okay. been more steampunk. Science uh, fiction. You know, yes, turn of the century. Uh, probably taking a lot of the visual cues from what they had you know, done in Discovery Land in, um, in uh, Europe and brought them over to the United States kind of overlaid it on what we had here now did they decide like as far as was it replacing our Tomorrowland or was it going a new it was land? A, it was a replacement for Tomorrowland gotcha okay so like the spires were down and there were these different kind of spires and the even where the um the uh, plaza pavilion which is now the Tomorrowland what is it now it's Tomorrowland Terrace was the plaza pavilion back then like it would become part of it officially part of Tomorrowland instead of kind of in this like no man's land in between and become like an observatory and and oh. like people would be characters of Jules Verne and and different people in science that would come out and interact with folks while they were like eating lunch. So yeah, there there was going to be quite a big switch over. Um, and 
the Discoverers Club. Yes, maybe? that was it. It was called the Astronomers Club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And oh, so yeah. close. The interesting thing was is that apparently in the in this design that you're talking about, how is that they would be called back now and then, so you'd have you know Isaac Newton or Galileo or or, or whoever on on stage at the at the Astronomers Club, and then they'd be called back that they have to go back to the film, and they would exit the stage as if to go into the theater to perform. Mm, interesting. It kind of it kind of sounds like what they were trying to do with the Explorers Club restaurant in uh, uh-huh. Adventureland in uh, in Europe, and that yep. that didn't take off. That didn't last very long either, as I recall. But we got the Adventures Club at Pleasure Island, yeah. which kind of lends a little bit to yeah. this. I mean, it was yeah yeah so. They dropped the idea for Discovery Land, as, as Hal was talking about, and went for really science fiction future or the... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the Buck Rogers science yeah. fiction future rather than the, like, steampunk science fiction future. Exactly. So, as we're going to... As you'll hear on episode 48.5, um, how we talk about the film was, was actually made twice. So, it was made in French, but at the same time, they actually filmed uh, it in English. They did everything twice knowing that they would eventually present this to the U.S. audience. Um, but they did need to recast the two characters, Timekeeper and Nine-Eye. So I think it's, you know, at this time, and Brian, you did a little research on uh, what else this gentleman uh, was, was doing for Disney. You and I were looking at a couple different sites, but uh, the Timekeeper was, uh, the job of the Timekeeper, the voice was given to none other than Robin Williams, which yeah. he, he was... A few years from Aladdin. What did we look up? He did Good Morning Vietnam, Popeye, yeah. and um, one other one for the studio. He was in, he was in the middle of doing a fair amount of work with the studio at that time. So, right, you had him on the uh, the animation tour, right? Yep. Over, yes. over at Disney Studios, you had Aladdin, and so there was quite a bit. And you know, this was really at the peak of when Disney was utilizing his voice talents. Um, we'll talk a little bit about, about his performance as we go through the description of the attraction, because typical of Robin Williams, they gave him a script, but he didn't follow it all the time. <laughs> there were certainly some great lines ad-libbed. Um, some of the best thing, I think, is, is, the, is the little quips and quotes that they let him do when people are coming in and out of the audience, um, and we'll, we'll describe that in a minute. But, um, they did uh, cast uh, another individual for Nine Eye, and uh, that was Rhea Perlman of Cheers and Taxi fame. And um, she's done a, a lot of different work since then, too, as well. Um, H.G. Wells was Jeremy Irons, which we also know from the, uh, uh, obviously, The Lion King, as well as the, what am I thinking of? Spaceship Earth? Yeah, Spaceship but this Earth. is before yeah. both of them. This was his first exactly. thing. It was. And it doesn't, you don't even put two and two together when you hear it. I, I, I. I still have a hard time believing it's him when I see the film. So, the film. Do you guys know what the the original film name was? I do know that one. Yeah, yeah. It's called From Time to Time. From Time to Time, which which is interesting. Um, so our Circle Vision Theater in the Magic Kingdom was renamed the Transportarium. A mouthful. Everything was tariums and transport and all sorts of stuff. Which is weird because it's not supposed to be about transport. It's supposed to be about. I guess they thought vision. You wouldn't figure out. I don't know. I, I digress. It seems like a very well, strange name. And this is where the story is. If you guys, if anybody can keep all this. Okay. So the theater was the Transportarium. Um, and then also later on, they renamed it to the Tomorrowland Metropolis Science Center, which is yeah, so a, here's, a mouthful. So let me, <laughs> I can put some context around that. So, so I, Excellent. So I think in the 1994 Tomorrowland redo, the idea of that section of the park was that 
that was sort of, you know, the developed city center. So as part of the rich backstory, it's like the where we had uh, the excess, uh, you know, alien encounter. That was the, I think, the convention center or something. So that was supposed to be a traveling thing that came through. And then on the other side was a science center. And inside the science center, you know, is this exhibit of the transportarium with timekeeper. So sort of the concept was that these were freestanding buildings that had their own lives. And then there were different exhibits that were coming through from time to time. And that's, that's why it ended up having multiple names. And later on, it just kind of became known as the timekeeper because I I think they had some issues with trying to get people in there. It was a little not obvious what the show was about. And that was about the time that they started to really cut back on extensive maps with like really detailed descriptions of things. Like you didn't get the nice thick books like you used to get at Epcot. It was literally like a one sheet map that would unfold. Uh, and also the way the architecture was designed, it kind of hid the entrance a little bit. I'd say that right side too. Everybody, at least if I'm picturing 1993, four JT, mm-hmm. I'm zipping left for alien. Did alien yeah, kind of alien, open uh, yet? Yep, alien, yep. Space mountains mm-hmm. that way, and then to the right, if you think about it, it's just Timekeeper and Dream. Yeah, Dream Dreamflight, which, which was an old attraction. Those yeah. were your. Yeah, those were your two. Like, ah, let's just hit this at the end of the night on the way out type thing. Like, you're not looking right if you're coming in through Tomorrowland. Right, and you literally would have to look through or get on the other side of that big pod thing in order to see the entrance and then the marquee that there was something there, which was a problem that continued, I think, even with, like, Laugh Factory, which is why I think that thing finally came down. It was just hard to figure out where the entrance to that was. Um, I'd have to look, too. I recall a vacation... VHS, the ones they mailed you because we just watch them on repeat because we just did that. <laughs> I feel like they said something like travel through time with the timekeeper. Like that was their thing. Like, so you were like, you know, is that shot panning shot of the room right. with the, the time traveling scene in the background and everybody's looking like crazy. So it was like, you felt like I'm going to a time machine type area. And my thoughts were, I'm not going to universal to go right back to the future. <laughs> so this is the next best thing. <laughs> As a, as a kid, that's yeah, what I that thought, makes, at least. And even, I think there's photos of, uh, of like, them with where they stuck banners outside on the architecture to try to try to draw to people in because it was just so hidden. It was it just, you know, they were, at this point, they were trying, and it, and the show ran for 17 years, so it's not as if people didn't go see it, but I don't think it ever probably reached the capacity they wish that it did. I will say, as a kid in the Circle Vision 2, I'm imagining having a kid now, and you can think of this way. I was always told, don't sit on the lean rail, you know, don't <laughs> get up off the floor. Like, so, I mean, I'm imagining my parents looking, being like, oh, that's one of those stand-up theaters. I'm going to have to yell at the kid the whole time to stand up and pay attention. Like, it's, I can see that being a reason to well, skip the, it, too. The timekeeper invented those, as we're going to get to in a little bit. Yep, yep, He did, yep. so. All right, so let's take a walk through the attraction from outside the... Tomorrowland Metropolis Science Center. Um, they've got a, a little A-frame set up out there, kind of like, what was that, a sandwich board, right? Oh. The, the little A-frame. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's kind of like trying to get you in there. You know, meet the inventor of the time machine today live, as if it's a live show. Um, and overhead, that saucer thing that was just taken out, what, a couple months ago, right? Yeah. Five, five, six months ago. Had a red LED light saying the amazing timekeeper and everything. So... You go into into the queue, and you know 
kind of similar to other attractions. There was all this futuristic or advertising things like they did with you know Space Mountain and um, uh, what else? Muppet Vision has mm-hmm. the the posters. So they had some. Uh, the, and this is kind of funny. They kind of were seeing the future here. Space Collectibles Convention. Isn't that Comic-Con? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Right? Uh, recreational rocket vehicle show, like a like an RV show. So you go and see recreational rockets. So um, They were full on with their theming, and this is the whole everywhere was like this. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and, um, I, and I'll tell you, the queue today that you go into for Laugh Factory or Laugh Floor, it's pretty much exactly the Timekeeper one. Except yeah. they put some like more crap on top of it, but those like those canisters, the clear canisters with the bubbles, and yeah. that sort of like faux marble. That's all original Timekeeper stuff. And there's uh, on some of the columns, there's like these sort of like radar or satellite dishes attached to the top. That was all installed for the Timekeeper show. So yep, <laughs> it's it's still there. That's right. Now this was the era of overhead. CRTs, cathode ray tubes, and we're talking kids, the real big heavy televisions that were mounted with giant lag bolts. <laughs> so they wouldn't they had to be they had to be put up to code. That's for right. Sure. That was That's right. There was a whole union crew that all they did was <laughs> ensure that television actually some of them had the safety cables. Do you ever remember seeing those? Oh like yeah, it, yeah. On the backlot tour, they were so heavy they would have safety cables attached that if for any reason that the, the television fell. I mean, if it's a 32 incher up there, that's that's a, that's a good yeah. what 7,500 pounds. I mean, they're heavy. I... So uh, there was also a neat uh, hexagon showing how Nine Eyes worked, uh, saying showing early sketches and prototypes, how it works, and which was pretty neat. Uh, so at four minutes, we get that really annoying uh, warning sound. Um, and Nine Eyes is packing for a trip through time, and she comes up on the screen. She CGs. This is one of the first CG attractions, too, that had some some neat CG work, especially in the film as well. Uh, and she explains that she's a circumvisual photo droid. Nine, nine Eyes equals nine scenes of, uh, screens in the theater. And um, she talks a little bit more how she was uh, the latest development by the timekeeper. And cue the three-minute warning comes in. And very quickly, we're introduced to the timekeeper really, really fast. And, and that's really basically just a very enthusiastic Robin Williams exclamation, <laughs> which we'll play here for you. Timekeeper! I think he'd like to have a word with you now. And then it goes into the, the how it was how timekeeper was inspired by Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And this is kind of a, a retro retro here, guys. She studied at MITT the Metropolis Institute of Time Travel, but then she turns on a 16-millimeter projector where we get to see her training films (laughs) of how she was trained for her job. Um, It's presented in a cinema news fashion, so this is kind of like science fiction but a throwback when did they do those how you know with the old timey voice of, oh god that was know, all... global news coming to you yeah you that know. was what used to play before movies so the last right. time they did that was like in the 40s or the 50s maybe yeah so this definitely has that kind of feel to it nine eye prepares for the rigors of time travel her testing begins with a trip over the falls to prove she's watertight she plunges over Niagara Falls, she's thrown into a barn full of dynamite, and then hitches a ride on the space shuttle, showing how she can be exposed to all different 
uh, types of environments. And she's literally just like tied to the yes. top of <laughs> yes. the fuel tank, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just riding, riding right up with it. Humor, as they say. It is humor. That's right. So we've got one uh, one minute to go, um, and the doors open, and we go into the theater. So Oh, and there's something here that's different for, for Circle Vision, and they made a big deal about this when they first opened it. This was the first time they didn't do a load through for the attraction. So most of the time with a 360, you know, the exit doors open, you start to walk out. On the other side of the room, the entrance doors open up and the new group walks in. And then, you know, hopefully all the other people walk out and, you know, the first person in knows to stop at the end. On this one, they actually fought with operations to make it have everybody exit the theater and then bring everybody in fresh. So So a full clear out. A full clear out, yep. Now, was that because the Robin Williams character interacted, so to speak? I th- uh, I think so. I think they were really just trying to, you know, do something do something different, and they didn't want that. Yeah. You know, this there's a lot of shows in the Disney canon that are, you know, like, oh, there's either you're supposed to be the only one that's experiencing this, or if there's a bunch of people experiencing it, only you are getting this one special experience, right. and everyone else is getting like some other experience. You know, like right. like a dinosaur. It's like you know, you you've been specially selected out of all these other people to go back in time and get the dinosaur. All the other people right. are doing the normal thing, but you're doing something <laughs> different. Something. I, plus, too, he he had a to go spiel, and then he had a welcome spiel yes. too. So they kind of had to. You can't be going get out of yeah. here as you're coming. Uh-huh. Right, you right. Know, I also mentioned to Todd, I think, because we asked Jim Blythe if the pre-show, if he had anything to do with the pre-show, and he didn't. But the but the pre-show for that. And the pre-show for Tower of Terror were done around the same time. And they all have that trademark, like, uh, early 90s Amiga video toast, like, effects. <laughs> uh, you know, where you get, like, the fake doors floating around the screen and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's just funny to see. It is. Yeah. And, and we'll just quickly mention, in Europe, they had a completely different pre-show. They actually programmed... Uh, the audio animatronic figures to give the pre-show there and filmed it. And then when they came to America, they're like, Oh hell, we're not doing, we're not spending the time to do that. <laughs> like, let's just do something. Just throw some TVs. Exactly. At the something yeah. cheap and fast. Well, the thing is they actually, um, they shot it JT and then they ran it on a video wall. So they didn't have the characters like live, but they actually programmed them to, you know, to speak and do stuff yeah, and yeah. then filmed it and put it in there. But yeah, they, I think that's the thing, Brian. Is like that whole video toaster kind of thing is like it did, wasn't wasn't very expensive to do, so they they could do it. <laughs> well, I mean, that was the as you when we were getting on to the side, but that was the innovation of it was that that's, right. yeah. you could have professional video effects for a couple of thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and yeah. which was mind blowing when when they came out. And if you'll please step forward, fill the rows in the front row, down front. Thank you. So walking into theater, there really wasn't much changed um, regarding the American Journeys theater itself. Still had the blue walls. And I, I find this really interesting. One of the funny things to do when you work, walk into Circle Vision when, is watch people. Because it's circular and there's, you, know, you only have the lean rails, sometimes people line up the whole wrong way. And not until the cast member talks at the front do people actually turn around, right? This changed it. It actually, because it had a faux stage, so to speak, at the quote-unquote front of the theater um, with the timekeeper there, which was an 
unskinned audio animatronic that had a quite a likeness to Robin Williams. Um, it really forced people to come in and actually focus very, very early on, which is something that they didn't do uh, in other uh, in other Circle Vision. Uh. All right, so in front of the timekeeper is a red LED board. Remember, this is before HD displays or even anything better than television, uh, CRTs. Uh, it says 1994 AD or whatever year. It's, it's amazing to think that this ran for how many years? How? It ran up to 17, 17 years. 17 years. That's crazy. While you're filling in, filling into the, the, the theater, Timekeeper, is, it's got some great banter. Well, we're about to begin. In case of a loss of cabin pressure, just relax. Okay. Thank you. Come on in. Thank you. And he's, he starts to press buttons as if to get ready. And there's this kind of a din low hum in the theater it's at least in the video it translates to really annoying to my ears <laughs> i don't know if any of you else <laughs> it's environmental yeah. that's the that's the the you know you're walking into something that is not a theater that's like right. something's gonna happen and then i think the one of the best lines regarding safety comes about from robin and i really wonder if this was him ad-libbing for your safety i've invented rails for you to lean on i call them lean rails Please do not sit on the lean rails because they're there to lean on. All right. So the show starts. Um, Nine-Eye is in the time machine and um, we hear her kind of inside this. What would you describe it? Like a tr- It was really weird. It, it, it looked like a trunk, but it wasn't. And it had a mirror. What would you call it? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. It's just like this a big storage box, storage <laughs> cylinder with a with. And then it had like a glass front piece yeah. that would kind of like tilt up and back yeah yeah as if to open and close so yeah to sort of have her as if she's coming in and out of it right so she comes out and actually i thought this effect was pretty good she was an auto animatronic figure uh and she had a pole b- underneath her and she could move around the timekeeper and and fl- quote unquote float and, and in order to do that they she had a mist coming out of the bottom as a, as, as a, like a liquid skirt, like she was trying to keep herself afloat. Um, the effect was great, especially on crude VHS. It looks even more impressive. But from the back of the theater, it was really cool. And she would kind of go around the timekeeper and come around. And whoever programmed her gave her a very good effect to see, see like she was floating. It seemed like she was floating right there. It's mm-hmm. very DeLorean Back to the Future Part 2-ish with the, <laughs> the mist below That's it. That's right. You know, the... Yeah. I liked her. Uh, I liked her laser mouth. Oh, that's right. <laughs> now, was that projection, the, rear projection? Yeah. So there was a there's a little laser behind it that would do patterns and would actually shoot out onto a piece of glass. Yep. You know, sort of like a smoked glass in front, and and that would draw out the pattern of her mouth as it would open, close, and do expressions and stuff. Same concept as the rotating world on Spaceship Earth at the end of yeah. of uh, Laserphonic Fantasy uh-huh. back in the eighties. That's cool. Yep. They just just shrunk it down. How that's a smaller (laughs) version, you know. Just they're like lasers, man. It's cool. We're gonna use them. Put it in there. I will say too. This is that once again. I'm going back to being a kid in this. Seeing Robin Williams up there, where or the animatronic in that, it made you realize. All right, this isn't this stupid China video where I wanted to fall asleep in. Like, I remember seeing this and going like, all right, now we're talking. We've got you know, some comedy like here. This 90s kid, I see something here, I can look. And it's this buildup to what you're going to talk about next yeah. is the, the the nine screen video. But like, you know, it's like a, I don't know, it feels like Soren almost. Like Soren's got all the buildup before. And yeah. then when the screens actually come on, it's like kind of like, wow, now I finally see it. We should mention that like at this point, the screens are... 
are lit with kind of like a, a covered pattern, like a mechanical looking pattern. So this, the screens are there. Right. Like they're not just blank and then suddenly they light up. It's like, it's as if the screens have like a covering on them, like during this period. So, you know, you're kind of aware that something's going on, like JT says, but like it's, the thing is very holistic. As he says, it's like you're really, does a great job of like getting you into the story and, and making what's going to happen seem very believable. I mean, prior to that, when you walk into a 360 theater, it was just wall carpet and white screens. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, that's all it was. And lean rails. It was. And then yeah. the, was there like a narrator in them? I forget. Please enjoy Disney's presentation yeah. of. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, it, and, and even in, in that theater, it's like there's a podium in the front that would be empty. Right as the person's doing the load in. And then finally, once the doors close, it's like then the cast member would walk over to the front and stand up on the podium. Right. And then start, you know, yep. giving the, <laughs> the spiel. So the premise here is that uh, the timekeeper puts Nine Eyes into the time machine, which is this odd box, closes it. And then we see kind of a, a Pepper's ghost effect, actually, on the box, on the front of it, that she's inside, that we're kind of seeing through this box tubular i don't know what watch the video it's 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 hard to describe um and he says that he is going to take her in we put her back into history and is going to that way we can experience history he's not very good at the controls apparently just like uh, what was the robot in star tours initially what was his name oh you mean captain rex the captain rex yeah. also in uh, alien encounter and the uh in the opening, yeah, there's a lot of like incompetent robots going on in Walt right. Disney World, <laughs> which really doesn't lead much credence to the future. Even in Horizons, man, we got the guy spilling milk yeah. on the floor yeah. and spaghetti. It's, it's just must. Well, then Alien Encounter, there's a big mess. He he melts the the guy, and he's just like, whatever, just get to the yeah, chamber. That's... I mean, they're very. <laughs> yeah, it's a trope. It's it's very a favorite trope, the incompetent robot trope. It does not. Yeah, it does not give us hope for our electronic robotic future. <laughs> no, you know. certainly not. Certainly not. So, all right. So he sends us on our way, or sends Nine Eyes on her way, and uh, the very center screen is this tunnel warp purple thing uh, that takes us immediately into the Triassic period by by accident. So you've got to have a ha-ha funny moment here. Whoops, <laughs> I pressed the wrong button. And the LED displays uh i think question marks because it doesn't know where it is which i think is really just we didn't spend enough money we couldn't spend enough money on all the leds to write out how many billions (laughs) of years ago this was right so we'll just fill the the 10 spots with question marks um and uh you come face to face with a dinosaur and we will bust a myth in in the next episode uh with our with our uh interview regarding that but uh uh you, you know very quickly, that dinosaur you know comes after us, and the timekeeper, in the nick of time, gets uh, Nine Eyes out of there and beams us to the Ice Age. Which, again, another great line from Robin Williams. Uh, Twelve thousand years ago, the last great Ice Age. Fabulous! Oh, daiquiris for everybody! Um, now, this piece of footage was really interesting. That it was originally uh, created for Magic Carpet around the world, and they went back into the archives. And it was never used, and there was a problem with it um, in that the shadow of the helicopter was in there, and they digitally took that out. So one of the first real, like, digital manipulations of traditional film, which I, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and I guess that just lends more credence that not only do I- ideas don't die, but maybe footage doesn't <laughs> die. It's, it's <laughs> so expensive. That. You want to use it. If, if you haven't used it, you just want to go back and use it somewhere that you can. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's think about it. The, uh, 
as we'll find out later on with our interview, how expensive this film was. If you had those nine cameras on a piece of Ice Age, you weren't going to go just fly a helicopter up to a glacier somewhere and read this. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's just cost prohibitive um, at at the time. Nowadays, you can just throw a $1,000 drone (laughs) up there and have it done in a minute. Or make a CGI Taj Mahal. I mean, why throw the drone up? That's right. Yep. Yeah. See what you did there. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, we now Timekeeper thinks he's got this working straight. He says, oh, we're going to go through another warp. And he says, oh, this is the age of the Gutenberg printing press. And it is not. We are in the middle of a battle in Scotland in 1450. So we've got trebuchets and kilts and all sorts of medieval torture and <laughs> swords and all sorts of things flying all over the place, which was really interesting. Um, and this is these first three scenes are really to set the tone. Um, and again, now the LED says 1450, by the way, to set the tone that you, you're you're progressing through through time and coming closer. And obviously, the timekeeper is improving how he's operating the time machine. He's getting better at it. Um, so his final his real jump that works the first time we, we jump again to 1503, the Renaissance. And um, we follow a Mona Lisa into da vinci's workshop where he's testing a flying machine and just uh, just like the scene in world of motion oddly same thing Mm -hmm. isn't it i completely forgot about that so this comes what 10 years later Mm -hmm. they're like hey if if it worked once it'll work again exactly exactly and in that one the mona lisa was very upset she was sitting there tapping her feet because she was being ignored and uh and, and then this one Nine Eyes knocks, I don't know what it was, something off the table. Somebody gets spooked. They drop the rope or something. The guy in the flying machine comes down. And <laughs> uh, uh, Da Vinci sees Nine Eyes and starts to walk up to it. Now, if you believe the Doc Brown you know, yeah, thing here, this is, you've just problem. blown the time continuum, right? <laughs> just by yep. seeing something. But who knows? We'll we'll let it go. I should say it's like as he travels through time, it's like it's amazing how many people don't notice Nye and I until after whatever she needs to do is finished. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. All these people notice her. It's very convenient. <laughs> I mean, until like five years ago, Nine Eyes would have looked weird traveling anywhere in time. And now it might kind of blend in and look like a big drone. But that's yeah, true. And in the 90s, it would have been. What is that thing? I think if you just put an Amazon Prime logo on it, nobody would, <laughs> nobody yeah. would worry about it. Um, so, again, another quick jump. And we are in 1763. And Mozart, at seven years old, is, is playing a minuet. Yes, Tomadeus himself. Today's his seventh birthday. He's playing his own minuet in G. Isn't it fabulous? And over there's little Louis XVI with his head still on. <laughs> and again, Nine Eyes is spotted. And we talk about it more in the interview, but this was a very complex scene for them to, to film. Um, I, I'm amazed how much went into just this scene alone. And if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it a few times and see if you can pick up on maybe what they did to pull it off because it, it wasn't yeah. easy. There's a really cool. So what Todd is describing there's, so it starts off viewing Mozart as he's playing on a harpsichord. The nine eye backs out of the room into a hallway and there's a mirror in the hallway and she actually sees herself in the mirror, which of course is kind of hard to do because if you were, if it was a real mirror, you'd be seeing a reflection of 
the camera. Uh, and then uh, after she sort of, you know, they play with that a second so that way the audience can really get an appreciation for the fact that they pulled off this gag. She backs up into another room uh, behind you that has like a, a big, uh, like a bunch of people dancing, like a huge room with like, I don't know, a dozen dancers or something in it mm-hmm. uh, before she takes off. So it's that's actually one of the few places where you really kind of have to like turn to use some of the other screens to see what's going on. Because most of the time you're really kind of just facing, you know, the main action is happening where Robin Williams is. Right. So... And one of the really interesting things about this, we talked at the very beginning how Jeff, the director, early on was working on pans. A subtle nuance in this film is that because Nine Eyes can fly and float and pitch and turn and dive, he had to try to recreate some of those movements. It's not just a a straight flying and then a back out. He had to pivot it back and forward as and to give you the illusion that she was flying through you know these time periods yeah the camera is never really static in this one no where where it often is in a lot of the other uh circle vision films it's almost like the first one camera documentary or nine camera documentary (laughs) (laughs) it's like the office yeah in fact there's a really neat there's a neat part i don't know if you noticed this in the in the renaissance scene where they're outside and then she's got to go through the door to get Mm. inside and there's a little cheat in there where it kind of like flips through some frames it it's, oh yes it, it doesn't do like a smooth fly in it's got to do this little because yep. they they had to actually like we didn't get to talk to jeff about this but it's like i think they ran on a track so they had to stop filming and then lay the track forward and from wherever they got in and then they kind of used this little trick to cover the the transition between those two and they did those a couple times as if the timekeeper was adjusting ah and, okay okay yeah there you go. that's how the ex you know kind of He's futzing with the button, so to speak. Gotcha. So. A little Disney magic. Exactly. So we've been sp- spotted again, current theme here, uh, and he tries to get us to Paris. Now, he gets us to Paris, but he gets us to the Paris Exposition of 1878, um, and he's really trying to get us a little bit later. And the problem is that all of a sudden the time machine is stuck in fast forward, and here's where that judder that you were just talking about is kind of playing out. That's judder of getting into the Mona Lisa mm. is now playing out here. We're watching the Eiffel Tower being be, be built, and that LED counter is moving up from 1878. The timekeeper says, oh, I've got it. And all of a sudden, he, he stops, and we go right past 1889 Paris Expedition. That's when the Eiffel Tower was completed for. Mm. Um, and and it's, then, a re- it's a really neat shot of, of the Eiffel Tower being built, and we'll oh, yeah. tell you on the interview, it's like how it actually the, how they pulled that off we're, we're only halfway through this, this episode and people are already just baited to go and watch yeah. <laughs> listen to the next one so he finally does stop at the right one which is the 1900 paris exposition so uh, there were quite a few in in paris at that time so it really does play to how often and remember there's a lot of parisian and a lot of french um you know references here because that, that's where this whole thing started you know this was made for you're a, yeah. you're a Disneyland. And in Europe in general, it's it is I mean, disguised amongst all of this is a lot of history of European culture. Right. And like, you know, great European locations. So they managed to still sneak in a little bit of the travelogue aspect. Yeah. But uh, you know, but in a more, you know, again in a more narrative way rather than right. just like, hey, look at this. Yep. So if we remember from the pre-show how uh 
you know, Nine Eyes explained that the timekeepers real true heroes was H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. This is why we're here at the Paris Exposition of 1900. So we sneak up into a conversation, just so happens we're there at the exact right time, and um, they are in a heated discussion between whether or not time travel is possible. Um, and then... Oh, how convenient. Yes, we're just we're <laughs> here at the right time. And Nine-Eye pipes up, oh, you, oh yeah, Frenchie, look again. And of course, <laughs> Verne is just you know, oh my gosh, what is this? Takes hold of Nine Eyes, puts the hands on Nine Eyes, and Timekeeper I think says... H.G. H- Wills runs away at this point. Yeah, he's like, I'm <laughs> out of here with his little like, model. <laughs> I, I don't know if he was just upset or scared. I don't remember what it was. Um, uh, wasn't it like, wasn't there a thing where he, t- like, they're having a debate about science fiction versus like, f- science fantasy versus science fiction, right? Right, probable versus so, improbable. Yeah. yeah, so like, Wells thinks that like, time travel is is stupid because it's not really scientific it's more for fun right and and this actually comes around at the end of the movie so uh, it's it's a neat setup for yeah. for a pay, that'll have a payoff later on yeah and he's got this model of this what looks like an f-35 or a stealth bomber or something in, in yeah. his hands so oh that's right i'm sorry so yeah, that's right wells believes like time travel is like fun but uh Vern is more serious and doesn't believe that it would exist. That's right. Yep. Okay. So Vern is now holding on to nine eyes and she's, you know, yelling at the timekeeper. So the timekeeper decides to make uh, a jump and come back to current time. And well, Vern was holding on. So what happens? Both of them come back to current time. And now in the pepper's ghost box in front of us, we have nine eyes and, and Jules Vern and they get talking and, you know, very quickly Jules Vern understands what's going on in a matter of like 12 seconds <laughs> it's like oh <laughs> take me to see the future i, I want to see what it, this is all about and speaks perfect english on top yeah of exactly not a, not yeah. A, yeah no problem so he wants to see the modern world so uh, a, a quick switch all of a sudden we're in a dark tunnel and if you look to your the rear you hear this rumbling and before you know it there's a train barreling down the tunnel towards us and there's an immediate switch to outside through uh the out the farms of of france and jules verne is on the nose cone of a french tgv high-speed train going through the countryside looking like like a hood ornament or a mosquito that got caught (laughs) at high speed on the front that was kind of that was a new thing then right that that train system Uh, the tgv had been around for since the yeah this was one of the newer ones the orange ones had been around since the 70s i think so but the French are very proud of their, their train system and, and their high-speed rail. So, um, Multiple years before as, Tom Cruise did it in Mission Impossible, by the that's way. That's right. Jules Verne did it first. That's right. Jules Verne did it first. Um, so after that, we, we cut to a, a, a shot of looking at Jules Verne directly on the nose cone, and he's laughing with glee and you know enjoying it. <laughs> I'd be paranoid. How fast were they going? That's pretty, that is not funny. No, a pretty good clip when you're stuck on a, you know. Um, so he wants to see more. So the timekeeper drops in, in the middle of a street in Paris, uh, near the Arc de Triomphe. And, um, he exclaims out, this is a car. I want to try it. <laughs> so <laughs> what better way to let, uh, Vern try something by putting him in the seat, in the driver's seat of a Formula One race car, um, which I believe this part was filmed at a racetrack in, in Austria. 
So he's tooling around the track with nine eyes and us, so to speak, behind. So now you're getting kind of a high speed. You're getting a lot of the tilts and the turns. And, um, you know, this is the first time that things are starting to pick up pace here. Um, so we, we go through and that. And he's going, he's going backwards on the track, right? Because at some point it's like the rest of the race cars like come forward. So Yes, yes. <laughs> And then all of a sudden it cuts. He, I forget what he says. We want to go faster or whatever, I believe. And he's on a bobsled, um, going down a bobsled track, which, you know, that it's just, I can't even imagine them putting this 600 pound camera on there, let alone going down a bobsled track with it and wanting to sit on this thing <laughs> you know, with it. Uh, really, really neat, neat uh, scene there. And, um, then all of a sudden we're underwater in the Bahamas with uh, Jules Verne inside a submersible. He's kind of in that um, the bubble portion of it. It's kind of a what half of a sphere in the front, and he's sitting there at the controls. And um, uh, Robin Williams has another great line right here. There goes Suzanne Samuels pulled by a blender fish. So it is true. I, I do want to mention uh, the next scene, next two scenes that actually were not in the American version. Um, and uh, these were pulled out. Um, for reasons that it it really didn't lend anything to the to the American show, and there was a lot more um, uh, French connections and European connections in these scenes. So Jules Verne was in a a balloon, and they were started to soar over Moscow. It was Red Square, uh, and there was uh, sharing it with a Russian couple for some reason. And um, the it's really odd because there's something about the, the, the timekeeper's like uh, it was in French. I couldn't really understand, but your 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 presence there isn't right. So we're gonna send you to an airport to get the Russian lovers, or to get away from them, or something. And they're mm-hmm. taken to Paris accidentally so they can go on their honeymoon. It's it just I don't know. It's a bizarre sequence. And then we get the who was the gentleman? We get the he was the baggage. Oh, Gerard Depardieu. Yeah. Yes. The famous question mark. In the 1990s, he was very famous. He was a famous French actor. He had done a well, number of he Disney was, films. He was the the famous. He French was the actor. only famous. Like French actor. if you were casting a Frenchman in a non-French film, that's who you do. He was not only he was not only like the Tom Cruise of the French box office, but he was the Frenchman that Americans cast in the role of a Frenchman. Right. Um, he was so. in a Green Card for Disney at that time, right? With for with a- Andy McDowell, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything else, but I know he was mentioned all the time. Well, he was he was Columbus. He was Columbus in 1492. Ah, okay. Yeah, it was a major major motion picture there. He played Christopher Columbus, which of course he was about two feet taller than Christopher <laughs> Columbus would have been, like back in so 15 whatever. He was also in 102 Dalmatians. I look at that. Oh, because oh. oh, you need to be even zanier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so that whole Moscow honeymoon sequence would be like the Jerry Lewis influence. Yeah, yeah. On the on the on the film. So know. the only connection that works here that you didn't get in the U.S. version was that Vern sees the Concord behind him and he calls them flying wagons and he begs Timekeeper to let him fly. Um, now it gets really even really weirder. Apparently, some employee sees Nine Eyes, starts talking to her. Um, Vern ventures too far away, was then arrested, and with the help of an employee and time and the timekeeper and Nine Eye, they freed him, and now he's flying. So there was a link there to get the timekeeper in the air at, with the airport scene, um, but in the U.S. version, you go directly from underwater to air 
uh, to flying. And I think Nainai is at some point says, oh, I get it. We're on land and we're sea and now we're in the air it's to try to, you know, bridge that bridge that uh, that odd gap. So there was a little bit of rewriting. So we're still in Europe. We fly over Neuschwanstein Castle and uh, Mont Saint Michel in France, and um, Q Verne hanging out of the side of a helicopter. And you get the timekeeper yelling at him to get you know get back in. You know I'll take you out of here, whatever. And um, we fly off to the English countryside for a nice visit with Trevor. What journey is complete without a brief moment in the English countryside with someone named Trevor? Hello, Trevor. Take care. And New York City over uh, a bridge that we can't remember which one it is, but we uh, we don't believe it's the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, a joke by Rhea Perlman there. That's a city of a million dreams and one parking space. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, Vern is still not satisfied, and he says, "Timekeeper, can you take me even higher?" And then the next line. I, I wonder if this was written in or it's Robin Williams again ad living, but it's definitely a nod to Aladdin because he says, your wish is our command, which I thought was kind of neat. I, yeah, Aladdin came out in 93 and this was, came okay. out in 94. Well, well done. So, so Vern is now in a EVA suit, a extravehicular activity suit, which is the suit that astronauts wear when they need to go out of the aircraft. So here's my thing. Yeah. I, I get the whole, I can... Because touching nine eye, it's like I can move you from one place to another. Right. But how does he put her inside? Put him inside of a submarine, or and in the how does he put her in inside of like a spacesuit? Like as if there was an empty spacesuit <laughs> that was just floating around <laughs> that you could somehow put him inside of. I don't know. I, I digress. As yeah, there's a little artistic license here <laughs> that we have to take, I suppose. So, so it is time to take him back uh, to the location of the 1900 Paris Exposition and the timekeeper makes another mistake. Here we are, back at the exposition. Great place for long time, you big lug nut. Hey, check this out, babe. Yo, yo, do the timekeeper rap. You got to see it now. See that. So it is, it is current day uh, location of the exposition. So timekeeper again makes another quick adjustment. And we are back in 1900. So, um, you know, Vern is loves this journey that he just went on. He gives Nine Eyes a flower, kisses her little, I don't know, call it a hand, a grip. I don't know what it, paw. Yeah, she she has she has two she has two manipulator hands on either side of her. So yeah. So H. G. Wells then sees Nine Eyes. So he's perfectly timed to come right back into frame. Um, this is impossible. And they go off talking about it, and Nine Eyes flies off and comes back to present day in back into the theater. And of course, at this point, the timekeeper says, "There's a place we haven't seen, the future." And he says that he's going to pick one of us, you know, some people from the audience. And he says, "Oh, look, this is the this is the family, and, and you know that we're going to choose, and it's they're in the." pepper's ghost display and you know it's supposed to be a family that's in the audience and they're they're overacted so just a little setup there is during the whole time that nine was transported there's like this laser gun thing that points at her in order to transfer into the machine so when he says he's looking for someone in the audience it's like (laughs) the laser gun thing turns and points at the audience and then like the light goes on so they're they fully do like the part of the gag of like they're 
pulling someone out of the audience. Wait, now who they pull then? Is it like re- as you said, it's fake people? It's or? the same people every time. Yeah, and the same people. The same people they work there, right? No, it's the same people that were in the French. It's just a film. It's just part of the video. Oh, it's on the film. Yeah. Okay, you're. It's, it's I, the same. Yeah, okay. They never really. It's because I was thinking like, oh, that'd be cool if they like do today. It's like they could legitimately do some kind of video yeah, capture yeah. of you know yeah. heads and. But back then they. They just pretended as if they pulled because in the back of the audience, it's like you'd never yeah, know. Sure, you'd assume like, and, oh, and, it really and like happened. I said, you know, you're here, you're in August. It's 104 degrees and humid outside, and this family's wearing uh, long sleeve shirts and they have like sweaters in their hands. You know, it's like it's just like they didn't even bother to refilm that for Florida. But anyway, how I'll let you talk a little bit about the uh, concept car. So we are we're sent forward to the future. I I, I believe it's 2038. Um, we've only got 19 years to go, by the way, before we have these flying cars and we're flying around. Yeah, a very futuristic Paris. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll let you explain what they're in. Well, uh, I mean, so in in France, it's like the attraction was sponsored by the car maker Renault. So they actually made sort of like a Renault. I think Renault worked with Imagineering to make like a, a futuristic car. And it was actually on display. JT, you can jump in here because you're the car guy, if you know more. Um, it was actually on display in, in the Disneyland Paris version, but it's just, you know, kind of like very futuristic bubbly flying car. And as it rises up, you can, you can see, you know, the family sucked into the thing and, and they take you on a, on a 3d animated tour of Paris. And we found out that, uh, the company rhythm and Hughes actually did all the 3d modeling and animation for this section. Uh, yep. although, although the car was actually exactly. stop motion, which I thought was fascinating. And it was called a. Rhinos, Rhin, Rhin, it's probably French, Rhinostella. They, that, this is also that time too. This, this kind of faded away in recent, the de- recent, most recent decade. Like the, the concept cars were so crazy concept at the auto shows and everything. Like this, it's not even something that would ever be into production except maybe one small angle of the design or something. And um, you wonder, I'd have to look at some. We'll see, like the random auto shows from that those years around there if it sat at the reno display or something like that it might have which I'll, that should be easy to find so i i did a little digging while we're talking the rhinostella um reno made it specifically for this ride it uh they said it was their take on a car from 2328 it was designed from the latest biomechanical techniques coated with an innovative synthetic material and propelled by a bio engine supplied with a fluid named plasma elf <laughs> and i <laughs> go yeah. down to your local <laughs> elf dealer now and pick up a nice plasma it could, gallon it can of carry plasma. five people in perfect silence controlled by voice command so very futuristic for 1992 oh, almost like jets and yeah <laughs> They, uh, it was definitely in the, uh, it was totally fictional, all this stuff. Like, they they even made a backstory on accidents in development. Um, it, yeah, they said, uh, there re- accidents occurred. One of the prototypes during his test phase with two people on board went missing. Yikes. It was found a few days later in the desert without any trace of the testers. This doesn't give me a vote of confidence for Renault. <laughs> I will share this Renault press release uh, from 92. And it did say uh, it was on display in Paris at the uh, at the attraction till 2002. Oh. So some people might have seen it there. So <clears throat> a couple of things for our younger listeners, because we always remember, like, we have people very yep. young. 
who won't remember that there was a period of time where Renault vehicles were sold and heavily marketed in the United States in the budget category in the like late 70s, early 80s. And I always remember that their commercials were the, it was a guy that did a lot of voiceover work, but it was like, the Renault Alliance, you know, 9.9% <laughs> financing, which would give people a heart attack right, right. today. But <laughs> but like back in 1983, it was like, wow. Um, but the reason I bring it up is they were the original sponsor of Impressions de France. Oh, oh, there we go. So when they made the Impressions de France film, they were the original sponsor. And there's a point... If you see the film now, uh, where the French flag fills up two screens at one point, two of the screens in there, that was originally uh, Renault was featured in those screens. And then when they were no longer the sponsor, they dropped the French flag in there. Gotcha. Hmm. Oh. I probably had friends that drove their Le Car. The Le Car was a big deal back in the early 80s. You saw them a lot. You don't see them on the road much anymore because no. no. they were kind of crap. I'm trying to find here, too. I do see it on display in various uh, displays, so I'm not sure the exact location now. But if I find out, I'll, I'll, I'll put yeah. it in the show notes. The other thing, too, is the... Uh, <laughs> Les garbage dump. <laughs> no, I'm not even joking. It's in, like, I see it in some newer, different museum of, huh. of, of junk that... I feel like, Todd, you would have seen it somewhere in your journeys, but at the random museum but there is a right ryan estella from the 20s and 30s too big big car you know like uh oh. indiana jones style you know like uh the keys are in the ignition sir like that big <laughs> ugly car like that so um yeah that's the renault history of that they, they put a lot into it it sounds like though just for this so so we're seeing this future and who should appear next to us uh well remember how mentioned that he was that hg uh, wells was carrying some sort of model car well there it is and hg wells and jules verne are appear next to us in this flying spaceship um that mimics exactly the model that he was that was he was holding um you know and the future's great and everything's going to be fantastic um paris is all lit up with lights and, um, and there's fireworks there's fireworks there's digital it's, fireworks going on exactly and lo and behold we come back to present day you know actually a quick question on on the individuals that they if the experience is so realistic as we just experienced, right? We have 360 vision through all these places. Why would we want to pick the family to go when we could just see what Nine Eyes was seeing? I, you know what I mean? They, you know, I would say in the press materials for this, it's like they kept making a big deal about how, you know, they were trying to break that. They were trying to do that illusion of like characters coming in and out of the movie. So, it was it was probably just right. like how can we push it even farther? Oh, what if we picked someone out of the audience to go with it? It's like w- wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. And again, just anything to sort right. of like break that break that fourth wall and try to be more immersive. So they're probably just the concepts as far as That's they could true. go. So we come back to present day. The little LED ticker in the front comes back to the whatever date you were in or whatever year. Um, and that's a pr- that's a pretty neat thing. Yeah. I mean, because typically. You know, your typical Disney show is like programmed in some kind of computer and it just runs the same thing over and over again. So it actually have an element where it would need to know what the date was. Yeah. I'm fascinated to know whether they would have to like do some sort of every year when the year changed or whether it actually just was like, oh, it's 
Okay, it's that would be cool. 2011. Nowadays, yeah. Nowadays, you can just call a date function and the computer yeah. just knows. But back then, did they did actually say, oh, like I'd love to know if on, on January 1st, 2001, somebody went in there and they said, oh, well, we were on it. It still said 2000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it was like, an automatic. T- typically, like everyone forgets to do that. So then it's like a week later, they're like, oh, crap, we need to change the date. <laughs> All righty. So as you exit the timekeeper, Robin Williams gives you a proper farewell, chases you out of there, shoo-shoes you out because, as House said, they're going to get you out of there, close the doors, and start the show all over again. So, Okay, show's over. Get out of here, you little numbskulls. I love you. Thank you for coming today. Get out! In February 2006, uh, it was reported that the timekeeper would be to, to close on February 26th of that year, and um, that was the last version of the attraction to be closed Um Tokyo Disneyland had closed in 2002 and Paris uh, had closed in 2004. So I I will say this is probably the first time we've talked about an attraction that um, is so close to closing. We're just at the 25 year mark of it actually, uh, you know, 1994 is when it opened. So it's definitely something that a lot of our listeners, uh, even the younger ones probably do even remember going into it. Um, but with, you know, Robin Williams passing a couple of years ago, um, you know, obviously the laugh floor has been there a while. There isn't a lot of Circle Vision 360 films left. Um, you know, I, we thought it was a cool idea to go back and, and take this trip because it really is a, um, a really good segue to seeing how theaters also became more interactive. So it's, you know, like you mentioned how nowadays they could just put a camera there, take a headshot and throw it in. You know, which I'm sure, you know, they do on Spaceship Earth. You've got the interactivity of, of Crush's Turtle Talk and all that stuff. And, and, and Mike Wazowski's Laugh for. Um, and this really was groundbreaking for, for the time. It really bought, bought right. a new something else in. And if they did it to if they did it today, it would, I mean, 95% of it would be digital. Right. And not, not actual footage of anything. Right. That's the charm of it. But that's, but that's actually interesting. You know, it's it is actually fascinating, and, and it's a shame in some way that a lot of these theaters close because you know in, in Paris and in in uh, Anaheim, the three D their th- Circle Vision uh, theaters became Buzz Lightyear, Astro Blasters, which is which is why it managed the last year is because they replaced you you had if you had wings with that, and and so there's very few of these formats around. But imagine if they were able to go forward. What if what if they did a computer? You know, what if they had Disney Animation do a you know full. 3d in the round animated film it's like that could be really interesting or if you did uh if you actually did like 3d you know in the round with 3d glasses and more i'm like who who that could all look really really cool and with today's projection mapping and seamless projections that you can probably get i mean the the it's endless where you where you could go with it it really could be interesting medium it's 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 a shame because it really, I think they really did a great job of yeah. from where they started to, to where they ended up. Well, is right. Like, and that this was the, a huge this was the circle vision magnum opus. Yeah. Uh, you know, yep. it's where they, it's where they crescendoed and stopped and their last effort was clearly their best effort. I want that kind of theater with like swiveling chairs so I can <laughs> sit and spin and look at whatever I want, but like really smooth ball bearings so it's silent there we spinning. Go. I'm 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 immediately envisioning a Star Trek attraction 
where everybody is sitting in a captain's chair surrounded by their own screen, just turning and looking at the Klingon ship coming to attack (laughs) you. And that would be awesome. If you do go into Monsters, Inc. uh, Laugh Floor today, you'll notice that they've added a pitch to the to the room. So it is slightly theater like now. Uh, But look up. You'll see the round walls. We don't know if there's any if the screens are still there. But knowing Disney was cheaper to cover than to take down. I'm sure there's the projection rooms are still up there. There might even still be cameras. Uh, I mean, uh, projectors, who knows? Um, but it was, a, it was a, a neat little attraction. I remember always going in. It was a great place to go in and just cool off or, uh, you know, relax for, for a couple minutes. And I would say get a load off the feet, but you weren't allowed to remember. No sitting for safety. <laughs> so. So we want to also uh, mention to a lot of our followers out there that um, we've we've released some new slides and some new films recently. Brian, you had the uh, restaurant slide set from 1975, I believe, which fabulous yeah. views of the Tomorrowland Terrace. It it's a big time yeah. set. So, so if you haven't caught it yet, we created a backstory because these these slides told a story and being lost to history 40 plus years ago we we don't know what the story is but it was odd to find a full set of slides uh, focusing entirely on the magic kingdom's food service and one particular shot of the polynesian uh the bar in what is now captain cook's that uh, back then was uh, a nightclub and we got these slides and we start looking at them and there's Photographs of the menu boards and photographs of the serving lines and photographs of the cash registers. Uh, so we, we in one slide, there was a gentleman with his family who's holding a clipboard, like a like a like a clipboard to take notes. So we have imagined that this was a gentleman that was doing some kind of research, uh, probably for a competing theme park or amusement park as to how Disney uh, did food service. And that's what was the purpose of the slides. Uh, that makes the most sense. So, uh, you get a glimpse at some 1975 opposition research, but it's a really, really neat glimpse at, uh, some, some long gone. Well, the food establishments, most of them are still there, uh, but they've been through so many iterations. They're virtually unrecognizable. How was particularly excited over one is, uh, the Oasis Snack Bar, which I have now found out, uh, the building is still there. If you, if you exit the Jungle Cruise, or if you're coming down to get on the Jungle Cruise, you'll see this kind of like tiki shack uh, on the left-hand side. Or if, if you're coming out of the exit, it's directly in front of you. And I remember as far back as you know the late '80s, early '90s, it's like it would occasionally be open seasonally, and you could get a Coke and some snacks and stuff there. Um, but apparently, it has been cut. Um, it was used as storage for the shrunken head Ned, shrunken head Ned's uh, boats, oh, like yeah, those little yeah. RC yep. boats that you'd put a quarter in, and you'd they'd go around where the Swan boats used to go. So, but before this, yep. before uh, I say before the, that little boat thing that we're familiar with, it's like there used to be chairs and tables out there, and so you would get your stuff from the snack bar and sit down swan boat glide by because that was part of the the path that the swan boats would take so when all that went away uh it got turned into sort of like a storage area for the little boats and stuff and then after that uh, apparently the 
the Jungle Cruise skippers have no air-conditioned place to take a break. Mm -hmm. So they kind of fixed up the inside and sealed it off and just turned it into a room where the Jungle Cruise skippers could go and get some air conditioning. It's like a club cool for them. (laughs) Yeah, because it leaks, it just like stinks in there. So it's kind of gross, but it's got AC. So it's the only thing they have, so they use it. It's 40-some-odd years now old you know at a minimum so it probably needs to get knocked down and and rebuilt but it's it's a shame because i i was hoping like oh yeah we could come back some i could come back someday get like another drink from there <laughs> probably never going to be a snack bar again but oh fond fond memories and it might smell if you do get a drink <laughs> so yeah and we also have some uh, a new film that we put up to it's um it, it's from 1976 and uh, I called it a tour of the Magic Kingdom. The family goes around to a lot of different views and, and vistas, and it's, it's a great new film. So we've got more that we'll put out there uh, in, the, in the coming coming uh, weeks. So keep an eye on the, out on that. Try to get every you know in a gallery or out uh, or film out every other week or so uh, when we can. So keep an eye out for those. Uh, also, as our merchandise, as always, you can go to retrowdw.com forward slash support us, where we've got all sorts of new designs. Um, how I know you're working hard on a bunch of bunch of them. You know, you don't have to tell us because a lot of these things are in secret. How just randomly sends me a message some days. Oh, the new designs in your in your in your mailbox. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. So I'm sure you've got another one cooking. Or sometimes a listener will say like, hey, like today, like literally today, we had some like, you know what? So would I. So I started. There we go. <laughs> putting that together too. That um, tiny little seed can grow into a complete opportunity of t-shirt designs. <laughs> <laughs> so as always, thank you to everybody who provides the support by purchasing our t-shirts and stickers and, and all sorts of tapestries, phone phone cases. If you do have a tapestry, by the way, hanging up in your house, please do send us a picture. I, I'm sure somebody's bought a tapestry or a phone <laughs> pillow out there before. So. We have to talk real quick about here next month, and we're not going vertical. We're going horizontal next month. This is something that is long, long overdue. How's looking at me weird with that? I don't understand. You don't, I don't understand. You don't even the, remember what we? No, I just don't understand. I don't understand the vertical to horizontal. But what what he's what he's trying to say is how if you can dream it. You can do it. Now, who said that? Walt so Disney? Walt Disney. <laughs> Walt, Walt, yeah. Don't start that one. We're, there's more to that story than Tom Fitzgerald, and we're going to get to it. So I'm putting that out there. Oh. We're going to get to it. This might this might take us months, uh, folks. I've never ridden Horizons, and I don't even know what the big hubbub is about. So uh, That's it. JT's out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask you the hard-hitting questions this time. That's right. You could smell you could smell oranges and choose your ending, and it was like, ah, this is the most amazing thing I've ever exactly. seen. Exactly. We have been telling you it's coming, and uh, we can rest assured. And you have been nagging. Yes. Us and people since have been we started the show, whether it's in person, via so. email, or whatever. But we are going to go visit Horizons. probably be a 
at minimum a two episode. I'm sure we'll have a few interviews in there as well that we'll sprinkle in throughout time. Maybe not all in a row. Right, either, right. So we might break can... it up because, you know, it took us four and a half years to get to this. Maybe maybe part two will be four and a half years. <laughs> Start with the history of General Electric. <laughs> just the whole first episode is just nothing about the ride. The queue is going to be 45 minutes, just talking about how the queue is at. Well, actually, I probably yeah, could. Just the yeah. mural. We could talk about 45 minutes. So we will certainly give this one the treatment it deserves. I know I think our other two-part episode was Stubborn Donkey Part 1 and 2, which was World of Motion, uh, which was a great episode, one of our early ones when we didn't know what we were doing, but I think it turned out pretty well. Um, So, yes, everybody raise a glass. It is time for Horizons. We'll be there next month. Uh, Just brace yourselves. We may need a little more time to put it all together, but we'll certainly get it out there for you. So with that said... um, as always, thank you very much for joining us and uh, appreciate all the comments. If you can, give us a shout out and a review on iTunes. And uh, we will see you next month. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and RetroWDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For J.T. Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Master. All feet are the same, bony knock knees. Bye bye, bye bye. Have a nice day, bye bye.